Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. It's fair to say that Lyda Krusen was mayor during a historic time in the city of St. Louis. As the first woman to be elected St. Louis's mayor, Krusen had to deal with the vexing issues of crime and responding to an unprecedented global pandemic. But she also had political and policy pitfalls that made her four years in office difficult, to say the least. So on this edition of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lippman and I break down the big issues that Cruson dealt with over the last four years and what policy matters remain unfinished for St. Louis Mayor-elect Tashara Jones. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today is... Rachel Lippman. It is Monday, April 19th, 2021, and it happens to be the last day of St. Louis Mayor Lyda Krusen's administration. And while there's a lot of attention right now on Tashara Jones and the fact that St. Louis is about to have its first black woman mayor, I figured it would be a good time to look back at the four years of... Cruson's administration, because it was an eventful time. There were ups, there were downs, there were kind of unfinished business. And I think it requires a whole show to talk about it. And Rachel, you talked with Mayor Cruson pretty recently, and you, you, you hit on a number of different topics that we're going to go over on this show. What were your general impressions of her reflection of her tenure? The general impression I kind of got was she was thinking about her, ter- her term in kind of, you know, raw raw product. A a lot of development, uh, you know, the stadium, soccer stadium was secured on her watch. Uh, She talks a lot about the number of building permits that she issued. Um, You know, she... The quote that she one of the quotes that she had in there was, you know, I was never thinking about my legacy. Uh, You know, I was always working for the people of uh, St. Louis that was specifically in the context of covid. Uh, You know, it's one of those things where it's hard to tell how that unfinished business that she speaks about was a result of the covid-19 pandemic, which basically knocked out an entire year of her mayorship. It became the one thing that she needed to focus on or how much of it was just, you know, her not acting to to finish some of of that business. So she thinks of her legacy, I think, very broadly in terms of um, things that she has accomplished. And at least from the, you know, the interview that I did with her, there wasn't the sense of, or at least it wasn't fully addressed, what the kind of more broader 
uh, personality of the city legacy is or the impact on on things like race relations, police community relations, et cetera. Here is Krusen kind of summing up what she feels are her accomplishments in the last four years. There are many accomplishments over the last four years, certainly our COVID response. Um, you know, we raised the minimum wage for city workers by $15 an hour or to $15 an hour. We've had a lot of momentum in terms of uh, we turned over uh, 100 acres to NGA for that construction, the expansion in Cortex, uh, Square is renovating the old post-dispatch building. We've got a new stadium going up, and there has been, and there continues to be uh, to this day, incredible amount of construction. We have almost a half a billion dollars in construction permits issued already this year. I have been St. Louis Public Radio's de facto stadium reporter on and off since 2015. The soccer stadium that was cemented in her tenure was by far the least controversial stadium deal that I have seen since moving to St. Louis. Not only is there no like direct general revenue that's going to the stadium, it's going to be taxes that you know you buy a hot dog with and it goes towards that. Uh, the stadium is actually going to be paying property taxes, so St. Louis public schools are going to get money from this. And I, I don't considering how controversial the scuttled NFL stadium was and the first soccer stadium was, I, I think that you have to count that as one of her major accomplishments. I think a lot of that goes to how the aldermen worked on the issue. Um, you know, they presented her with legislation that was pretty good in terms of the ter- of those terms that you were mentioning, where there's property tax going in, where there is no direct general revenue outlay. But, you know, it she did sign that legislation. You know, she said this is an acceptable deal to me. So, yes, she was able to oversee it, sign it. But a lot of that work, a lot of that conversation was Alderman saying we don't want to put a bad deal forward. And to her credit, she didn't champion in the same way that Mayor Slay did deals that would have required direct public funding outlay. She didn't come in and say, I can support this. She you know, was able to step back and let kind of the aldermen of those wards and aldermen maybe who didn't vote for the original soccer stadium plan or the football stadium plan kind of take the lead in pushing and, and, and leveraging a better deal. Now, obviously, you could look at that and say, you know, the mayor had to be on board with that because she was willing to sign and willing to allow the alderman to have that leeway where she could have just said, no, we're taking what the st- what these stadium proponents are going to, to, to give us. So, you know, does she deserve credit for allowing those negotiations to happen? Absolutely. But I think in terms terms of the terms of the deal, a lot of that is on the So I want to go to the COVID response, because if there's going to be things that would be deemed as positive about Cruzan's administration, I would argue her COVID response would be one of them. And here's why. If you look a little bit to the west of St. Louis City, you will see how St. Louis County Executive Sam Page's COVID response caused an immense political controversy It fostered this new opposition coalition where black political leaders and more conservative Republicans teamed up to stymie a lot of Page's agenda. We're not really seeing those same dynamics in the city. I don't think there was much complaint at all 
about her response. And and St. Louis City is the most fractious political environment in the world. And that was interesting in that you, you really didn't see the same level of pushback to her mask mandates, capacity limits, et cetera, as you did with uh, Sam Page and the others. Part of that is political comment in the city is a little bit more limited. You don't have a true sort of public forum on any general topic in the way that you do with county council. So you didn't hear about it as much, I think, because the outlets are a little bit different. And there were certainly businesses, individual businesses who were just like, this is dumb. We don't like these COVID restrictions. And some of them were, you know, shut down temporarily by the city in response to them, you know, disobeying these COVID laws. I think that's that's part of it. Um, I think the other part of it, too, is just kind of how the money came to St. Louis, the way it was distributed. St. Louis County got its allocation directly and was able to spend it. For St. Louis, it had to come through the state first and, and the money was just less of it to spend. So you didn't have, I think, you know, people fighting over their part of the pot because the pot just really wasn't as as big to fight over in the city of St. Louis. You had at the beginning a controversy over whether Dr. Eccles was uh, legally able to be the uh, health director. They solved that by naming him the acting health director. You know, but it was interesting to me that you just didn't see the large scale pushback uh, that Sam Page did in the way that he responded to COVID-19. And I think that may just be, you know, how Cruson went about it, too. You know, it was it was more, I, you know, I'll take questions. I'm not going to dictate this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to include the Board of Aldermen where I can. There was never a concerted effort to leave the Board of Aldermen out of the conversation. They do have appointing, uh, excuse me, appropriating authority. She didn't go and ask to, you know, to step over that that authority there. So here's a, a clip from Rachel's interview where uh, Mayor Cruson talks about some of the differences between the city and the county in, in terms of COVID. You know, I think you started the question by talking about differences in our COVID response in the city and the county. And and certainly that's that's been interesting. Um, I mean, parks, just take parks, for example. I never shut down the parks in the city because I thought our parks were so important for people's mental and physical health. In fact, we closed some of the roads in our parks to give way to folks to walk or ride their bike or jog socially distanced so that there'd be more room for walkers and, and bike riders than, than for cars. And so it was just a bit of a different approach. And, um, uh, you know, I thought that was the right approach. There, there were other differences, though, besides just the fact that the city never shut its parks down and the county did. Uh, one of the glaring things is that if I took my seven-year-old son to the St. Louis Aquarium, he wouldn't be required to wear a mask because it's a nine nine and above. But if I take him to the Magic House, he has to wear a mask. Now, let's take aside that he wouldn't have to wear a mask because he has special needs. He he does regardless. It doesn't make that doesn't make any sense. It's not like COVID is less of a problem when you cross over into the city and the county. You know, you're responding to what you think the community can and will adjust to and handle. You know, is nine a compromise with, you know, factions of the county that don't want any restrictions placed on masks in public spaces? There's, it, it, they were always similar, but not the same. The spirit was always similar. You know, we don't want huge gatherings. We don't want, um, 
you know, 600 person weddings in an enclosed space. But you're right that the details and details do matter. The devil is always in those details. were never entirely the same. You had one moment at the very, very beginning. Um, I think it was like that first or second week where you had the county executives or those who are in that role, the mayor and the county executives of St. Louis, St. Louis County, St. Charles County, Franklin County, Jefferson County may have been involved, I don't remember, where they all kind of came up and said, we are closing down restaurants to indoor dining. And that was, I think we were still in the office when that announcement happened. So that was, you know, second week of March, third week of March of 2020. And then after that, you never saw coordinated announcements in that same way. And the orders, again, the spirit was always the same, but the letter was different. The details were different. And, you know, for whatever reason, it did lead to confusion and, you know, why is COVID different in the city than in the county? And it wasn't. It wasn't any different. But they're responding to to different pressures, I think, in different political realities. I want to play a clip now from the politically speaking that then Alderwoman Cruson was on before she became mayor and then use that as a jumping off point to another major element of her legacy. I think job one for the next mayor is neighborhood safety. Uh, And I have knocked on doors in Baden. I've knocked on doors in the West End. I've knocked on doors in Hyde Park. I've knocked on doors in Carondelet and all over this city, north, south, east to west. And uh, when I ask voters, what's on your mind? What do you want to make sure the next mayor knows? Invariably, they start talking about neighborhood safety in some way or another. They talk about something that happened around the corner from their house or something that they're concerned about or, you know, that sort of thing. So I I think most St. Louis voters agree that neighborhood safety is job one for the next mayor. So Cruson was the first mayor to completely have local control under her administration. And she also managed to get a half cent sales tax increase for public safety passed under her administration right after St. Louis County did basically the same thing. But if you look at the output over the last four years, there's not many people who are going to say, like, the city is safer. I would say that you could probably look at statistics any way you want, but it it seems like the perception of St. Louis City being a dangerous place is worse now than when she took office. And the numbers do bear that out. I mean, I think overall... It's the same breakdown of where things happen as it was before her administration came into office. The, you know, the, the parts of the city are undeniably violent places to live. It isn't, you know, where I live, where you used to live, where we're afraid to sit out on our porch. It's not a, you know, widespread sense of doom. But there are definitely areas of the city where people are afraid to sit out on their porches because they are undeniably violent places to live. And the gap between those places has not closed. It has probably gotten worse. And just overall, the raw number of crimes has gone up. You had 200 162 homicides this year. We're approaching 60 homicides already this year, I think, is the the latest number that I saw. So you look at that objectively and know the city is not any safer in those areas where it was already violent and just kind of in general, too. This is Cruson talking with Rachel last week about her perceptions of public safety at the end of her mayor tenure. So I think there have been a lot of things uh, 
put in place which will cause public safety to improve over time. But there are some other things which, you know, are very challenging. For example, our gun laws and the easy access to guns, which went in place just about four years ago where no one need, you know, you don't need a permit, you don't need any training, anyone can carry a gun anywhere, anytime. That was a very big challenge over the last four years. And that probably won't improve uh, because I don't see, at least on the near horizon, any change in the gun laws. But the other thing is, you know, we implemented cure violence. We put uh, body cameras in place. We have implemented the 911 diversion and the cops and clinicians program. All of these are things which really um, needed to be done and are being done and, and hopefully will be continued by the new administration because there's no quick fix to this. Uh, and COVID has exacerbated violence all across our country. I think that mayor-elect Jones probably realizes this because she's a former state legislator. The Missouri legislature is never going to implement any gun control of any significance, probably in our lifetimes. So hearing that clip from Krusen, it seems like it, it probably has some validity. But my response with that is do something else. Because you can't depend on the state to do that. It's such an easy, I think it kind of is an easy excuse for them to use to say, you know, well, the, the, the state's made it so much harder for us to, you know, put any gun restrictions in place. And if we just, you know, called for concealed carry permits again and required people but, but to learn. It, how, it, how does that it even, doesn't. What does it that doesn't. even matter, though? It, like, it, I, I want to, I hate to interrupt you, but let's just say a cop pulls somebody over and they, they have a gun that's not it's not a concealed carry permit. If they haven't committed another crime, how does that change the dynamic toward any you know, gun crime where people do use a gun? Like, I don't understand that. I think the argument they would make is if you're able to do something to get guns and those who carry guns illegally off the streets, you're lessening the likelihood that a deadly weapon is in the hands of someone during a dispute that doesn't necessarily have to turn violent if guns aren't easily accessible. But the thing is, this is an easy excuse that mayors going back to slay have used and probably before that, that, you know, the state of Missouri makes it too easy to get guns. Do I think it probably would restrict the number of guns that are out there to be stolen if you had a little bit more restrictions on who could use them and who could access them? Maybe. But you also have to think that a lot of these individuals who are committing the acts of violence are not getting their guns through the usual channels. They're probably probably stealing them from cars when people come downtown, or they're just kind of neighborhood guns that have been used and accessed by a number of different people. So, you know, the idea that gun new gun restrictions would have been the reason that or the reason that crime went up and crime would have gotten better, I think is just it's easy for them to say, but it is not the complete or the biggest cause of the issue. We'll be right back after this quick break with a further examination of Mayor Krusen's record as mayor. And we're back on this special edition of Politically Speaking with Rachel Lippman, St. Louis Public Radio's St. Louis City and Public Safety uh, czar. Whatever they want me to cover, I do. <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know what your title is, but you clearly know a lot about both of these issues. It's technically justice correspondent, but I call it the nothing ever happens beats. <laughs> Well, I want to talk about uh, race in the second half of the show. It's not lost on me that even though St. Louis City, and I don't know what the census numbers are going to say, but it's a largely black city. It may not be a majority by the time the census, but 
happens, but it has a significant black population, yet it's had a white mayor since 2001. And I think that uh, regardless of what Cruson did, no matter what rhetoric she used and no matter what proposals that she put forward, there was always going to be angst about the fact that there is a white mayor in a city that is largely black. And I think that she touched on this issue when you asked her about the racial divide in the city that I want to play right now. Well, I think certainly there is a racial reckoning, a long overdue racial reckoning in this country and in the city of St. Louis that is occurring now. And it is, um, as I said, it's it's a long overdue reckoning. Um, certainly the way you know, uh, we dealt with it specifically is to have a very diverse cabinet, to have a very diverse group of directors to seek the input. I mean, I was often uh, all over the city, both north, south, east, and west. And that has not always been true of all mayors. And so I think it's, it's really a person-to-person -person approach. So I want to break this down into three parts, two which I want to talk about now, the third I'm, we're going to talk about in more detail. Um, I think that there were two episodes in particular that really challenged Cruson long term in terms of race relations. First was how her administration handled the protests over the Jason Stockley verdict. Um, I, I think especially the fact that there was an incident where a black undercover police officer was beaten to the point where fellow officers were, were charged with federal crimes. Two of them, I think, uh, may face trial in the future because it was a was a mistrial. I, I think that has to be part of her legacy when it comes to how she responded to protests for police accountability. What do you think, Rachel? I think that's true. And, you know, I, I did ask her about that in my interview with her. And she, you know, emphasized that, well, after John Hayden became chief, the protest response looked a lot different. But it doesn't discount the fact that she was supportive of Lawrence O'Toole, who was the temporary chief at the time of the Stockley protests, stood up with him when he said, you know, we as police owned the night. And you can't untangle, I think, the issue of the racial reckoning with the uh, reckoning around uh, police violence against communities, especially communities of color. And I think there were a lot of missteps that she had there. There's, you know, the Stockley incident, uh, O'Toole saying we own the night and, and her standing up and not it, you know, seeming to jump in and say, no, this isn't your night to own or addressing that specifically. And there's a difference between knocking on doors in different neighborhoods and and uh, having a diverse cabinet, which will necessarily bring diverse viewpoints in a way, but also having a diverse cabinet in terms of viewpoints and thinking. Uh, a, a younger white individual may have a different viewpoint than an older black individual. So it's not just having racial diversity in your cabinet. It's also having a diversity of viewpoint. And I don't know how far she went with that in terms of different ways of thinking about these issues of racial equality, of police brutality. The second episode happened last year when she was having one of her live stream events. And she started reading the names and addresses of protesters, um, which was such a uh, controversial incident that a lot of people called her on her to resign. She didn't. There were protests in front of her house. In fact, one of the protests uh, precipitated this McCloskey incident where people were cutting through that neighborhood to get to her house. And I think that she she faced a lot of criticism for that. Like, what what do you what do you think she learned from that incident? 
I go back and forth on whether this was it, there's a, a a larger part of me that is inclined to believe that was just a massive unforced error where maybe you are thinking they've already made this information public in some ways and you know how is this any different than people putting their addresses or zip codes down for public comment um, you know, does it not click in your mind for someone to tell you, hey, stop, let's not do this? You know, but there's also a part of me that goes, maybe she was aware of what she was doing. Neither of them are good. You know, if it's an unforced error, it's not thinking through things in the moment. It's obviously a lot worse if she's deliberately, you know, quote unquote, doxing these individuals. It's, it's I think, just, um, again, another moment of, understanding the problem at a very kind of high intellectual level, knowing that this is something that you need to address and not necessarily knowing specifically how to go about it. Maybe not having the right uh, counsel, the right advisors on your side to say, this is how it should be, you know, better handled, better addressed, better talked about. Here is what you can say in this moment, in this situation. I want to talk about the third point that had I think the probably biggest impact about her, about Cruson's relationship with race relations, and that is the failure of the Better Together plan. Um, I I have talked with Mayor Cruson about a city-county merger combination reentry for years. I think she's a true believer in it. Like I think she really thinks that the city should be part of the county in a certain way. Um, I don't think that there's any dispute, though, that the Better Together plan was probably not the way to do it. Like making a literal criminal, the mega mayor of St. Louis and St. Louis County, I think has to be one of the worst ideas. In, in to be history. fair, when Better Together was put out there, his criminal conduct may have been known to feds, others, etc. But he had not been charged yet when Better Together was was presented. I'm talking about Steve Stanger. By I the know, way. but <laughs> I, I want to just make sure I understand for listeners. But this is Cruson kind of lamenting on the failure of Better Together in your interview. Well, I think one of the things that um, that really is holding our region back is the fragmentation of our government. I have always thought that, um, and, but I don't think that's going to change. I, the people of St. Louis City and County uh, have spoken pretty loudly on that, that they like things the way they are. Um, so as a region, we're going to deal with um, the results of that. I don't, I don't think... Um, much will change structurally in the city and county with regard to a combination, uh, at least in my lifetime, maybe in yours, Rachel. Uh, I think folks folks like it the way it is. I think the failure of Better Together is is more complicated than what Cruson said there. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of a simplistic explanation. I think people didn't like what Better Together was trying to do and the way that that was set up. And she's taking that to mean that they want no form of combination. I think you could approach them with city reintegrating into the county as a municipality and you're eliminating some of the duplicate functions, uh, economic development, health department, etc. I could see discussions about, you know, the special school district, which I know isn't a topic of yours that's important to you, Jason. I think to say that people have shown that they want no form of connection whatsoever is a pretty simplistic explanation. They didn't like what Better Together 
was presented, but they were willing to sign signatures and petitions to to explore other forms of togetherness in what's known as the Board of Freeholders. And obviously, there's been some discussion as to whether that process can be restarted under a new mayor or whether it has to uh, you know, be completely restarted from the very if beginning. I, if I were the freeholders proponents, I would just gather new signatures for that just to make sure. Just but, to make sure, for sure. Yes. The fact that Stanger was made the leader of this new metro government, I think, was a bad idea. But I think that the bigger reason why Better Together failed is it was seen, whether it, whether you think this is perception or reality, as an existential attack on black political power. Because when you make a mega government that includes a largely white county with a million people and a largely black city with less than a million people, the chances of a black person winning one of the citywide offices goes down significantly. And also the fact that all of the city county offices and the board of aldermen and the board of alderman president and the comptroller and mayor went away under this prompted people like Starsky Wilson, who now is the leader of the Children's Defense Fund, to say something like this. That a uh, plurality black city that would still be a municipal corporation would be operating with governance that it did not elect, never had an opportunity to elect it, and does not reflect it demographically or politically. Um, That is a definition of apartheid. It was not lost on me because I follow black politics in St. Louis very carefully that political figures that usually weren't close with one another united against better together because they realized that if this went through their entire ecosystem that they have painstakingly built over the last 50 or 60 years would have been crushed under this. And I think that that is, again, just kind of uh, um not diving kind of deeply into some of this this the issues not having uh the right people the right people not having her ear to explain what this objection was to um you know not not kind of taking the moment to really think about how, what this could mean and and how this could happen and and you could see that a little bit too i think with the reversal of ward reduction trying to to vote on that again that's a whole other dynamic and issue where some of the people who are complaining about what it will do for the black political base in st louis actually voted for it when it was originally put forward. But I think it's, you know, again, the whole idea that they don't want uh, any sort of merger is, again, a simplistic operation or a simplistic explanation. As you pointed out, there are plenty of other things at work as to why Better Together failed. And she had the ability to reach out, you know, in in part of that the clip that you played before was, you know, she had always said some form of unity needs to happen. She could have gone and explored ways to make that unity happen. Again, I don't think the objection is to some form of cooperation. Maybe it is on some level, but the objection was specifically to better together. And I don't get the impression that that is is, is understood as perhaps it's understood with us. The, this is uh, Mayor Krusen talking about whether she has any advice for mayor-elect Tashara Jones. So, you know, Rachel, a number of people have asked me that question. And honestly, I'm not going to give advice unless it's asked for. Um, and I, I've had the, the pleasure of meeting with Mayor-elect Jones, and, and I told her at then, if there's any way that I can help you, she's meeting with all of our directors and department heads, she and her team now, um, 
we will help in absolutely any way that we can for her to be successful because we're rooting for her success because her success is the city's success. So she has my cell phone number and I will, I will be more than happy to visit with her anytime on any subject. I've known Mayor Krusen probably since 2011. I found her to be a, a thoughtful and conscientious legislator um, and also a person that I think took interesting approaches to policy issues when she was a legislator. I think she was an effective legislator. I think the fact we talked about it on a previous show, she was part of this business labor coalition that I think was dying because Steve Stanger hijacked it. I think the fact that she only won election of the primary by like a little over 800 votes gave her a very thin popular mandate to govern. And I think that the city of St. Louis is just it's just a lot different to be the executive leader of St. Louis than to be a legislator. And I think what we're going to have to see with Tashara Jones is she was an executive official. Mm-hmm. She was a treasurer. She was the treasurer. But we're going to have to see if the aspirations and the promises that she made during the campaign, she can actually deliver that as mayor. She may have a little easier time because $500 million can solve a lot of problems. It very much can. And but, she does have a closer relationship, as we've mentioned, with the county executive, Sam Page. You have a little bit more ability to work across borders if you have a better personal relationship. But but I, I, I think that she's going to run into landmines and problems that she didn't foresee, just as I don't think Krusen expected to have to deal with the pandemic. I mean, that's true for all politicians. You can come into office making big promises and then you have to deal with the reality of the office that you are in. I agree with you that uh, Krusen is a thoughtful and and conscientious uh, individual. Um, You know, I don't think other than maybe her alignment with kind of a a questionable political grouping that had backed Stanger and and we saw how that kind of turned out. I don't want to say that she was aware of what was going on, that there's anything untoward as to what she was doing. I think on the big issues and and I noticed and I don't know how much of this is just kind of her. She's an accountant by trade, so you're naturally going to be very, very cautious in how you do things and very methodical. But the way the Board of Aldermen votes is by ward. Uh, you, they, the clerk reads off run through 28. And uh, by virtue of her being the 28th Ward Alderwoman, she always knew where the vote was going by the time it got to her. So she was always able to pass and not have her vote kind of come down as the deciding factor and wait for the clerk to read through again to see what was going to happen. And I think on the big issues at times, maybe it was because she didn't have a mandate. Maybe it was because just it's not her personal nature to take kind of big transformative steps is she she didn't kind of lead on some of the bigger issues. Um, and again, maybe, you know, she's thoughtful, she's conscientious about things, but I think there's also sometimes an element of being a little bit too cautious with things and, and not really wanting to, to get out ahead of on any positions. And I think Jones is a little bit more willing, it's just more in her nature, to take some more risks in her stance. And again, as you mentioned, there's $500 million coming in that does solve, can solve, maybe will solve a lot of issues. Well, Rachel, thank you for joining me because I know you have to go cover the Board of Aldermen right now. It's my favorite thing to do. (laughs) Uh, We'll be back soon with more episodes of Politically Speaking. You can follow our stories at stlpublicradio.org. Politically Speaking is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Follow me at Jay Rosenbaum on Twitter. How can people follow you on Twitter, Rachel? At our Lipman, two Ps, two Ns. We'll see you next time.
from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.